You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Hey, we have been uh, spending some time taking a look at the strategies of the enemy. The Bible says that we are not to be ignorant of his devices. There are things that the enemy will purposely try to uh, use in our life, ideas, beliefs even, that will distract us from the life that God has for us. And whether you are a Christian or not, these are lies that the enemy will try to entangle us into or distract us from. So we've been kind of revealing some of the strategies of the enemy, his, some of his favorite lies, because he is a liar. The Bible says he is a liar. And today, we're going to talk about something that is neglected, that a lot of churches actually uh, preach the opposite of. And uh, it is something that, that gets a hold of every one of us. You don't have to be at a certain economic level to struggle with this. And today we're going to talk about materialism. We're going to talk about stuff. We're going to talk about the lie that the enemy gives us that somehow we think that money and material possessions, that stuff are somehow the key to happiness. And just to kind of get us thinking about it, here's a video that just kind of talks about our obsession with stuff. I am my car. I am my clothes. I am my bank account. I am my house. I obey my thirst. I have it my way. I just do it. I deserve a break today. I double my pleasure, double my fun. I live the high life because I'm worth it. I'm looking out for number one. I wait for nothing. I have a million choices. I get what I want. I do what's best for me. I spend my time where I want to spend it. No one wastes it but me. I have the world at my fingertips. If it doesn't work, I'll throw it out and get a new one. If I'm uncomfortable, I leave. There's another place just down the street. If I'm unhappy, I'm missing something. I find it. I buy it. If I want it, I get it. I accumulate, I collect, I acquire, I take, I use, I devour, I consume. I am not the center of the universe, but I'm the center of mine. I want to know what's in it for me. I want to know what I get out of it. I'm here to find happiness. I live for comfort. I exist to be served. The world exists to serve me. I am the customer. The customer is king. I am king. I think that video uh, really summarizes how we live and operate and the way we think about ourselves. I mean, we may not uh, acknowledge that or want to believe that, but that is basically how we function. That's how we live. That's why we drive and, and move into the neighborhoods we move into and, and purchase the things we purchase and, and want to look the way we look. Uh, we may not realize it, but, but a lot of times we, if we're going to be honest, we buy the lie. And uh, we somehow think that God is not enough and that possessions, property, and provisions will somehow bring peace. Well, heading into the holidays, this is a really important thing to talk about because uh, the holidays uh, are basically the time where people rack up about 40% of their debt per year. Uh, usually people head into the new year after Christmas with uh, about 30 to 40% more debt than the previous year, and they spend about seven to eight months trying to get back to where they were before. So uh, I want to encourage you to really dig into what we're going to talk about today and really listen. Uh, this is a great thing to get settled in our heart before the holidays. So one of our key passages for today where we're going to spend most of the day, if you have your Bible, turn to First 
Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at some other verses, but we're going to camp out a lot in chapter 6. So let's start right there in a verse 2 in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. All right, so that means the things we're going to talk about today are not optional. There's, this is not a set of things that we can disagree on. These are things that, uh, uh, that, that the Apostle Paul is writing to a young pastor named Timothy, talking to the pastor, Timothy, to make sure that your church gets this right. This is extremely important. You are to teach on this. He says, what? And he goes, by the way, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. I like that, man. I said people or pastors or Christians who or people who act or believe opposite of this challenge. He says uh, they, they understand nothing and they're conceited. This is a lot of arrogance in here. You're like, you can't, don't tell me what I can't do, right? Don't tell me. Well, this he says, well, they're conceited. This is something that we need to, to insist that our people know. He goes, uh, they have, talking about these people, people that refuse to hear this sort of message. He says, they have unhealthy interests in controversies. That means they just like to argue. They like to stir up trouble. They like to get involved in trouble. Um, and in controversies here is about, you know, argue over theological stuff. Um, and they like to quarrel about words that result in envy. You know, this desire of, I wish I had, I wish I was like them. Uh, they stir up strife, words that stir up malicious talk, evil suspicions, that's conspiracies, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind, a corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. He says, there is a lie that will, that will just kind of take over a church if we're not uh, teaching against this. And this lie that somehow God will make you rich. This lie that somehow if you become a Christian, that somehow God will make us rich because ultimately the lie is money will make us happy or riches or wealth or stuff and possessions will make us happy. And if that's what makes us happy and God wants us happy, then if we go to God, then he's going to make us happy by giving us stuff. It's a lie, he says. So there's people that got this backwards. This passage we're going to take a look at today not only exposes the lie, but it also answers and gives the remedy to the lie that we believe about this. And uh, I'm going to come back to it, but I want to explain this lie in a few incarnations. Uh, The first incarnation of this lie, some of the ancient lies are number one, is that somehow uh, we believe the lie that our wealth uh, is a measure of our worth. Now, some of you say, well, I know that's not true. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm worth way more than, than what I have, right? Some of you are like, uh, uh, but we, we might think that, but, but we, we do somehow, if we're honest, we would agree that somehow we judge our self and our value based upon the things that we have. And, and we know this because think about it. Have you ever noticed how, how when people who have money, uh, how, how much smarter they think they are? Have you ever noticed like these celebrities who have like, like make billions of dollars or these athletes and somehow they're like the spokesperson for everything. And they can talk about, you know, they're, they're meeting before senators about issues and current mind. They become like spokespeople for everything in the world that's wrong because somehow just simply because they're wealthy, they know better. 
um, or maybe wealthy friends. Maybe you have a friend that, that is a little bit more well-off than you and, and they feel like they can give you advice on anything, you know, because there's a sense of, of arrogance. Is somehow we think we're more valuable because we have more valuable stuff. And sometimes we begin to look at ourselves the same way and think that maybe we're not as valuable because we don't have that valuable stuff. Another way you, you see this in your life is, have you ever been intimidated by, uh, by being in the presence of someone who has great wealth? You know, and, and I see this, and this is how you know that, you know, you kind of judge your value based on your worth as if you've ever gotten in the presence of somebody who has a lot of money and all of a sudden you just feel real uncomfortable. You feel kind of insecure. You feel insignificant. And, and somehow you feel that they must be smarter than you. They must be better than you. Something about them is more superior than me because I don't have what they have. And they must be smarter, better, wiser, and more important. And somehow we think that we're not as good because we don't have or we're not as smart because we don't have those things. Paul is speaking about wealthy people in this chapter. We're going to take a look in verse 17. And he says, uh, by the way, notice he doesn't say to the rich that you are to uh, give it all away and stop being rich. But what he says, he says, um, and, he, and he doesn't say that we should be treating wealthy people any better either. He doesn't say, you know, treat the wealthy with respect and treat them. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that they're somehow more accomplished or more important. This is what he does say. First Timothy six seventeen. he says, command those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant. You see, it is our human nature to think that we're somehow more valuable, smarter, or better. We tend to value uh, or judge our value based upon our valuables. And we tend to base and measure our worth uh, on the wealth that we have. And Paul says, no, no, it's not how we should be judging ourselves. This is another lie when it comes to this is uh, the lie that our wealth is the source of our security. We think, man, if I could just, just get a little bit more into savings, things will be, man, I'll be at peace. I'll be able to sleep at night. If, if I could just get a little bit more uh, cushion, uh, maybe a, a better insurance package. If When things get better, when we get to pay off our bills, I'll be at peace. You know, I'll feel secure. If I could just get, you know, I, there are some people in this room that you think, man, $10,000 would solve all of the problems that you have. And for some of you, it's 20000 And for some of you, it's 50000 You think, man, when you get that amount, man, my life is secure. I can solve and pay off stuff, and my life will be secure. Well, this is what Paul says in verse 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. We can spend all our time and energy to make money thinking that somehow this is our hope, this is going to solve all our problems. Uh, let me clarify one thing. This is not a, 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 a money message. Um, this is about materialism. But uh, I do want to say that the Bible is not against saving money. In fact, the Bible says some good things. That saving is good. In Proverbs 21, it says, uh, verse 20, it says, The wise stores up, but the fools spend everything they have. Uh, Proverbs thirteen eleven says, Wealth gained quickly will fade away or dissolve, but whoever saves little by little will increase. The Bible is pro-saving. The scriptures do talk a lot about preparing for the future, but it never says to trust in that future or to trust in those things as your hope or your security. Looking back to our passage in verse 
17, chapter 6, this is command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't be arrogant. Because guess what? You're the richest people in the world. If you've ever looked at any culture outside of the Western world, we, the United States, are in the top 10% wealthiest people in the world. You're rich. Don't be arrogant. He says, um, don't put your hope in this wealth. This is not the do not have. This is the do not trust in. He says, which is so uncertain. Our possessions, our wealth, our savings. He says, it's so uncertain. But to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for what? For our enjoyment. He says, you know what? God gives you and blesses you things. You know why? To enjoy. He says, the problem is not having nice things, but finding our worth and our security and purpose in them and not using them in a generous way. He goes on to say, command them, that's us. He says, command them, the wealthy, that's us, to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and to be willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. That's talking about heaven. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You know, some people think, man, the good life, (laughs) that's a good life, you know, friends, you know, parties, mansions, possessions, those rap videos, it's all about the good life, isn't it? It's coming from a culture of a bunch of people that don't have a whole lot of anything. And, and so there's a lot of, they, a lot of hope in the possessions of, of that life. And, and they think the good life and people who are, who are, you know, uh, who have grew, Grown up poor, we somehow think, man, that there's like a goal to attain, and that's the good life. He says, no, man, teach people, he says, to be generous and to be willing to share and to be kind and to be the kind of people that just uh, are rich in, in good deeds. He says, man, that is the good life. He says, man, take hold of the life that is truly the good life. He says, man, wealth in the next life is what we should be saving up and putting our heart and passion into. Uh, now, I want to say that we, we buy this lie that our wealth is somehow our source of security because think about it. There's a possibility that some of you might have money, more money than you have right now. Uh, you might you retire or, you know, you might come into some money or you might win the lottery. <laughs> Don't play the lottery. Uh, just my thoughts that you can do what you want. Um, that's a whole other discussion. I, I'm not going to get into it. I was about to. I, was like, I don't want to get the, the Bible. I will say this: the Bible talks about how it's not uh, a, a righteous thing to get wealthy off the back of the poor. You know, and you would initially say, well, "Yeah, that's it's horrible to get wealthy off the back of the poor." Well, uh, 95% of State-funded lotteries are on the back of people who are below the poverty line in any particular state. So that means if you win the lottery, guess what? You're getting wealthy off the backs of the poor. So I don't think it's a wise thing to play the lottery because I think if you were to win, you'd be basically getting wealthy off of poor people and people who are looking to solve their problems through, 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 through money. They think that somehow the lottery will solve their problems. But like that verse says, people who are quick to get money will find that it will dwindle fast, but those who are saving little by little will find ultimate increase. 
so the, the way, you know, to get the get rich plan uh, leads a lot of people down a very destructive life uh, plan. But say you were to come into some money one day and, uh, you know, you might look back and go, how in the world did we ever make it with that, with 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 less than this? You know, and you might think, how do people sleep at night? What if something were to happen to them? What if, you know, they, their car were to break down? What if they were to lose their job and they have no savings? What if, you know, you, maybe you lay in bed right now and you're, man, I, I can't sleep at night. You know, uh, how, you know, I'm just I'm thankful for what I have. But if I were to lose any of it, man, what would happen to my kids? What's going to happen to my, how would we put food on the table? How would I make payments? You know what? We, we, we can't kind of reconcile this idea that that's not our hope and our security because even though we say it's not our security we still stress and worry about losing what we have and wondering if if it's going to be enough to take care of us our wealth is not uh, our source of security it is in our lord who provides for us richly for our enjoyment Uh, the third lie is that contentment will come after I buy one more thing, this is, this is a good one. This is a good one for Christmas too. Cause I'm like, my Christmas shopping is done after I buy one more thing. After I have one more thing, after I save up for one more thing, contentment is just around the corner. Just one more raise and you know, just a little nicer car, just a couple more vacations. Uh, and I'll be able to say, you know, I've lived my life. Uh, a few more things to shop for. If I could just pay this off, and, and man, I'd be set. I'll be content. But I'm not going to be content until one more thing. Ecclesiastes 5.10, Solomon had owned and purchased as much as his heart could imagine. But this is what he said. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And he says, this too is meaningless. He says, he, he is a guy who had it all and he bought it all. He had, he held nothing back and he found himself depressed and alone. And he, he came to the understanding that, you know what, if our love is, is in, is in stuff, if we think contentment will come with one more thing, then we'll never be, never be satisfied. See, the enemy wants us always to live comparing ourselves to each other in the zone of comparison, uh, you know, but, but, but their car is, is a four door, you know, I, their, their house has four rooms or they they have a bigger backyard or man, they were able to take that little extra trip. And we're always comparing, we're, we're looking at our clothes and our shoes and our styles or our home. And, and we may not see it out loud, but part of us is see, this is the seed of envy that's inside of us that sometimes can even hurt and damage Friendships, if you're always comparing, there's always someone who will beat you. So you'll never stop comparing. You'll never stop chasing. You'll never be satisfied. The truth is, if you're not happy now, you won't be happy then. And I guarantee it, you will always be chasing something. So the source of our lies that we looked at is our wealth is a measure of our worth. It's a lie. Our wealth is a source of our security, which is a lie. And I'll be content after just one more thing. That's a lie. So let's talk about the truth about these, about about money and stuff, about money and material possessions, about money and happiness. Um, and I want you to want you to ask yourself this question: What's the one thing that you can? What's what is what is the one thing that Jesus promised in this life? What's the one thing? And I think, well, you know, 
Can you think of some things? What are what's the one thing? Shout them out. Anybody? Turn boom. Don't even need to go any further. Oh, is it in my notes? Did you read my notes? Oh, pause. <laughs> because a lot of times, well, he's promised us this. He's promised us happiness. No, he hasn't. He's promised us trial-free life. No, he hasn't. He's promised us peace. Yes, but that's because we have this sense of eternal life. He promised us joy. Yes, that's because we have this understanding of a life that is to come. You see, the one thing, the one thing, everyone say the one thing. The one thing that Jesus has promised in this life is the hope of eternal life. The promise of eternal life. And, and this, is, this is a big thing because the truth is, if we get a hold of this uh, in this life, if we come to thinking that God is, has promised anything else, then we'll never be happy. If we somehow think that God has promised us healing, we'll never be happy unless we're healed. And by the way, if God promised us healing, you would never die because it's sickness that takes all of our life, regardless of how old or young we are, because our body is decaying. And at some point, if you believe that God always heals and he's just going to, you're either going to live forever or he's just going to stop having to heal you because you'll die. We have a, a decaying body that, that was never meant to finish this life in eternity in this body. By God's grace, he lets this body pass away where we get a new one. That's his grace that gives us that. Uh, but we somehow, man, God promises wealth. Well, then if he promises wealth, then you'll never be happy until you're wealthy. Well, God promised me a happy marriage. Well, then you'll never be happy until your marriage is happy. Well, God promised me that my kids would be saved. Well, then, you know, that's not a promise. But if you believe that, then, then you'll never be happy until your kids are saved. The, the, prom, the one promise that we are confident of in this life is our own eternal life. That is the promise that God has given us. Struggles, pain, hardship, poverty, none of these are a sign that you have messed up. Take a look at Job. He's a great character in the Bible. He was a righteous man of God, and he lost it all. He lost his own kids. He lost his, his, his marriage was going down the tubes. His wife was telling him just to go kill yourself. And his friends were all blaming him and ridiculing him and making him feel bad. He lost his friends. He lost his property. He lost his kids. He lost... Everything, but he was a righteous man. So our struggles, our pain, our hardship, our poverty uh, are not a sign that you have done anything wrong. They are, uh, they, there are faithful, godly men and women of God, Christians persecuted and in deep poverty all over the world right now. We got to experience some of those precious people when we went to Haiti this past August and we held hands and walked arm in arm with with people who are our friends who live in the deepest places of poverty and hunger, uh, maybe getting a meal, maybe getting a meal a day, living in a home that is purely canvas tarp or fabric. And and, uh, they have the joy of the Lord and they are followers passionately of Jesus. And they're not in sin, though we all struggle with sin as individuals, but they're not a messed up person because their life spiritually is messed up. They are rich in Christ and their wealth is not found in this world. Some think that if we live right and give our tithe and our time, that somehow God will always make sure that we're blessed and rich. That is not the gospel. That is not the truth. First Timothy 6, 5, this, he says, there's constant friction between people of corrupt mind 
See, people who have this view have, a, have an envious kind of corrupt mind of possession. Materialism is their gauge of value and wealth uh, and worth. He says, people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth, who think that godliness is the way or the means to financial gain. That somehow being a Christian will somehow make you financially rich. And, you know, that's the shame, the shame of a lot of television preachers who are just trying to keep their shows on the air uh, by promising that if you will give and bless them, that somehow you will be blessed. This is an example of corrupt men who rob the truth, who are using their faith and saying that somehow if they're a godly, generous person, that God will give them financial gain. That is a lie. Paul says, be warned about these people. They are a corrupt mind. Second Corinthians 11, Paul says, he talks about how Paul himself, this is an apostle. This is a guy who walked through his shadow and were healed at times. He was, Paul was the type of guy who when he couldn't travel, he would pray for, uh, uh, pray for somebody using a, a, a fabric and he would send it to them and, and they would, they would, you know, receive that prayer and, and God would use that fabric. Now, there's a lot of charlatans who try to do that sort of stuff today. Don't buy it. Paul was a unique individual. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I'd say if there's a guy who had a, who had a hotline to Jesus, if there was a guy in the Bible who you thought was godly enough to be rich and wealthy, you would think this would be the guy. But listen to the life that he had. In 2 Corinthians Chapter 11, Paul says that he was often hungry, that he was often naked, he was often beaten, he was often stoned. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about with rocks, all right? He was often uh, stoned with rocks. He was robbed. He was left for dead many times. He was shipwrecked three times. After this, he was shipwrecked again, so it was a total of four. He was beaten with 40 lashes, tortured. You know how Jesus was whipped at the post? One time, Paul said, man, I did. I took it five times for Jesus. And he says, man, five times he was beaten with 40 lashes minus one. Uh, fear for his life everywhere he went. He had countless enemies everywhere he went. He had sleepless nights and often struggled with anxiety and depression. But this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Look what he calls him. He says, for this light and momentary affliction, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says, what I see in heaven, that promise of eternity outweighs all of the pain and affliction that I have. That's the one promise I hold on to that I know is guaranteed. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. That means they will fade away. They're just, they're very frail and will break and they'll always need to be replaced. You'll never have enough. He says, but the things that are unseen those are eternal. He says he got it. He understood that the key, the promise is eternal life. He understood the one thing that we are promised eternity. Uh, you see, this life is just the birth canal for heaven. And it comes with a lot of pain and travail. Some of you 
were born into this life C-section. Here I am. And your life's been pretty good. No pain. But you know what? This life is just the birth canal for heaven. This life will have trials. This life is not our reward. This life is not our hope. Let's pick it back up in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain or greater wealth. You want to be rich, he says, learn to be content. He says, for we brought nothing into this world and we can surely take nothing out of it. You've never, have you ever seen a U-Haul follow a hearse? No, no matter how much you have, it will be left for somebody else. He says, verse eight, but if we have food and clothing, uh, we will, or we can be content with that. And let me explain what contentment means because finding contentment is hard. And a lot of us would think, what does it mean to find contentment? Does that mean that we are never supposed to want anything? Does that mean we're never supposed to have anything? Does contentment mean that we're never supposed to save up for anything? That we're never supposed to pursue a better life? Does contentment mean we're not allowed to do or to have or to possess things? No, this is what contentment means. We're going to unpack it. Contentment means this, write this down, means that I can cope with it even if I'm not loving it. That's contentment. Contentment is no matter what lot, no matter what place in your life, no matter what place you are in in your finances or you're in your home and your family is that contentment is I can cope with it even if I'm not loving it. Contentment says that if you only have a roof and a, and a little food in the bigger scheme of eternity, you understand you'll be fine. Paul understood this. Living on the run for years from people trying to kill him, in and out of prison for many, many years, he understood this. Why and how? Because he saw the bigger picture of eternity. Paul was writing a letter to a church in Philippi. It's called the book of Philippians. And it's a thank you letter for their support to him. And this is what he says. He's talking about how, how awesome it is that they were gracious in their giving to him. And this is what he said. I am not saying this because I am in need. I'm not asking for anything. He says, for I have learned to be content. He says, whatever the circumstances I've learned. He says, uh, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. He says, and I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. He says, I found the secret. And that is, verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, a lot of times we take that and we put it on a t-shirt and somehow we think, man, with Jesus, man, I can skydive. I can do anything, right? With Jesus, man, we can, come on guys, with Jesus, put your hands in. We're going to win this game. Through Christ, we can do anything, right? Somehow we, we isolate that verse and think that it means that with Jesus, that we can accomplish anything. We can tackle anything. We, that's not what it means. The context of this verse is about contentment. It means that if I'm flat broke, Jesus is enough. It means because Jesus is with me, I can endure anything. See, this is the key to life. It's not like you can be, with Christ, I can become wealth. 
I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I, I can be rich. I can do this. I can accomplish. I can go to school. You know, those are things that if God has in his will for, for you to be able to do, then it will happen. But this is all about if you're flat broke, you can endure because with Christ, you can do anything. You can even be poor. You can even endure hardship. You can even be sick and come out a stronger believer because in Christ, you can do anything. It's about contentment. Luke 12, 15, uh, then he said, watch out. Jesus says this, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. I'm going to tell you something, first of all. He's talking to poor people. And he's not talking about look out for the greedy. He's talking to them, look out, because greed can even grow in the heart of the poor. Guys, listen, I want you to know something. Some of the greediest, most materialistic people I've ever known are people who didn't have anything. Because that's all they can think about is their value based upon their wealth and the stuff they want and how just one more thing and how one more lottery, one more ticket, one more job, one more, you know, quick, you know, MLM will somehow get them out of their issues. And, uh, well, you know, he says, be careful. He says, um, guard your heart against all kinds of greed. He says, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus goes on to talk about a parable about a man who was a wealthy man and who had a successful business, uh, who did save up his wealth. And he was feeling secure when all of a sudden, boom, he dies. And he picks up the story, verse 20, he says, but God said to this wealthy man who did everything right, who was secure, he says, you fool. He says, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? He says, man, he says, this is how it's going to be. With anyone, with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich in life or rich towards God. He says, man, there's a bigger picture. It's not about investing in your financial life. It's about investing in your spiritual life. He goes on to say in verse 29, and do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. He says, don't worry about it. He says, uh, for the pagan world, that means those that are not followers of Christ. If you have a Bible, underline this, the world runs after such things. See, that's, see, the world has this tendency that one more thing, one more possession, one more job, one more ladder step up the process, one, a bigger portfolio, a bit nicer savings. Somehow the American dream is, is on the goal. I mean, it's even written into our Constitution and into our Declaration of Independence, right? For all men are endowed by their Creator. And, and there's this sense of for. It goes on to say, for the pursuit of happiness. I mean, our foundation of our country was birthed upon a pursuit of stuff, wealth, land. He says, you know what? He says, that's how the world runs after such things. He says, and your father knows that you need those things that you need. He says, but seek his kingdom and these things, they'll be given to you as well. He says, man, we need to, as believers particularly, we need to have a different view of how we look at life, possessions, and things. He says, when you have them, they're for you to be generous and to enjoy, but not to trust in because they're frail and can be broken and be taken like that. Contentment means if you're flat broke, Jesus is enough because with Jesus, I can endure anything and he will provide. Here's the second thing I want you to know about contentment is that contentment is something we must learn. He says that. He says, man, I've learned to be content. I have learned the secret. And uh, guys, listen, Paul did not say it was cool being poor. It was awesome being hungry. He says, he was saying, man, I've learned how to deal with it. I, I have had to learn. 
I, I learned it through trials. I learned it through being poor. I learned it through being hungry. I learned how to be content because I was there. And unless I was there, I wouldn't have learned it. So if you guys are like wanting to learn how to be content, get ready because stuff's going to be losing. Stuff's going to be taken. Stuff's going to be gone. It's like, well, I'm not praying that prayer. God, I'm content. I'm cool. Me and the idea is that contentment is something we must learn. Okay. Here's a Another thing about contentment, it doesn't eliminate our drive. It doesn't mean that we don't ever want better things for our life. How many of you or parents want better a better life for your kids? Those of you that are parents, I'm assuming you all raised your hand because I don't know about you, uh, I want a better life for my kids. I, I want, you know, I had a, a crazy life and I want a better life for my kids. I desire a better life for them. Uh, well, when Paul was in prison, he didn't just sit there and go, well, guess I better just deal with this, you know. He, in fact, the Bible says that he actually pursued ways to get out of prison through letters and through uh, meeting with people who were of, a, of authority that could get him out. And he actually sent letters praying for people. He said, pray that I would get out so I could come to see you. He didn't just resign. See, contentment is not sitting around all day being lazy, thinking that that is contentment. Contentment is not being lazy and being okay with with just being, uh, well, lazy. A lot of times we confuse contentment with laziness. That's not what it is. Contentment does not mean that we don't have a drive. Uh, contentment is not giving into your situation, but realizing uh, our worth and our security is not wrapped in those things. Um, we're saying it's not my stuff, but it's in my Lord. And it's understanding that God, if you have something better for me, then God, let it be done. This is a prayer in first Chronicles chapter four, verse nine, a little tiny, uh, two verses. Um, it's by a guy named, uh, Jabez and, uh, Jabez, he says this in verse nine, Jabez was more honorable than his brother's. He was a good man. He was a better man than his brothers. His brothers might have been jerks. We don't know. They might have been selfish. They might have been rude. Whatever the case, uh, Jabez was a better guy. He was an honorable man. He was more honorable than his brothers. But his mother named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. You know why? Because Jabez, his name means pain. Could you imagine that? (laughs) Naming your child pain. You know, you are a pain. Perfect name, pain from this day forward. So basically his mom, every time she called his name, said, pain, get in here. Right? Jabez, pain was his name. Great name. Uh, Jabez cried out to the God of Israel and he says, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. He says, make my farm bigger, make my influence bigger. He says, let your hand be with me Keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God says, you're a pain. No way. That's interesting. He says, keep my, when he says, uh, um, set me free from pain, he actually says, set me free from Jabez. I think that was cool. So he said, like, free me from myself, you know. And, And God didn't say, you know what, that's a selfish prayer. No way. You're born to suffer. Forget it. Uh, in fact, God says this, and God granted his request. And that's all it says about Jabez. I want you to know this. Here's the Christian pendulum. See, a lot of people think that somehow if you're a Christian, it guarantees riches and wealth and blessing. 
And that's a dangerous pendulum because you'll never be happy unless you're there. And then there's another side of that pendulum that some people feel that that the closer you are to God, then the more poor you're going to be. And that somehow if you're poor and you're in poverty, then that makes you a better person. That you must be close to God because you're poor. And then this group says, no, you're close to God if you're rich. And this says, no, you're close to God if you're poor. And you know, they argue a lot with each other. I don't know if you read books a lot, but they argue a lot with each other. This is called the poverty gospel, and that's called the prosperity gospel. And this is not healthy at all. And this is not a healthy place either. The prayer of Jabez is this. God, if it's in your will, allow me to have more influence in this life. That's the prayer. Give me, not give me more stuff. That wasn't the prayer of Jabez. There was a book that was written called The Prayer of Jabez a few years ago, and it's all about how you can pray for stuff. It's not what it's about. It's about God If it's in your will, make me a person of great influence if it's what you have for me. And with that influence might come position and wealth so that you can be a greater influence. It's if it's your will, enlarge my influence. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, not my money, not my stuff, not my boss. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid for what can mere mortals do to me. He says, our trust is not in our possessions. It's not in our provisions. It's not in our property. It's not in our, it's not in people. It's the prayer of Jabez. God, if it's in your will, enlarge my influence. But if you don't enlarge my influence, then God, I may not like it. I may not love it, but I can cope with it because I know I've got eternity to look forward to where true riches waits for me. Back to 1 Timothy, Paul gives us a warning sign about when our stuff has us. And this is what we're going to end with these thoughts right here. The enemy says money and stuff is the key to happiness, but God says contentment and relying on Jesus is. And then he says this in verse 9. He says, those who want to get rich or those that desire to be rich. Some of you, man, you want to be rich. It's an unhealthy obsession. He says, uh, those of you that want to be rich or desire to be rich fall into temptation and a trap. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He says, for the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root, not the root. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Okay. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. See, there are three gauges here of how we know when, when, when we are in that danger zone. Everybody do, the, do a meter, okay? Do this. This is a meter, in case you're wondering. Like, okay, now this is zero, all right? All right, now I'm not going to have, unless you, know, you want to do it, but uh, let's just, you got your meter. And uh, how many of you would say, like, you know, importance to you, like how important to you is a good job? You, you put your meter up, you know, put your meter up, okay? 
pretty pretty important. Okay, how many of you say like uh, having a, a nice home for your family? You know, that's that's a pretty good that's a pretty good one, right? All right, some of you guys are doing it. Some of you want to keep it personal. I understand. And then uh, some of you would say, you know, like you know, having having some good cars, cool cars. That, that'd be that'd be pretty important. You know, maybe maybe you got a meter there. You know, maybe you got a, a financial income figure. You know, don't don't raise your meter on this one. Uh, I'm going to put my arm down too. Some of you would say, you know, I've got a dollar figure that I'd really like. That would, man, if I reached that, man, I'd really, I'd really feel like I've, I've arrived, or I could feel like I could sleep better. You know, these are these meters. How do we know? These, these are the gauges of toxic materialism. Here's the first one. There's three gauges. The first one is our desires. Our desires. You see, our deepest and our strongest desires tell us. If I'm simply enjoying the things God has given me in this world or if I'm driven by the things I think I need in this world. See, materialism is not measured by what you have. It's measured by what you desire the most. So materialism is not gauged by the positions that you already own. It's gauged by the meter, right? Like, for instance, don't put your meter back up. But if you said, you know what, having a car, you know, that's pretty important. Well, that's that's a heavy desire. That's, you know, that's something you think about a lot. Or your car or your home or your income or the TV or the things that you want in your home, whatever. He says, uh, when we think that we need fill in the blank, when we think we need something to be happy, then we're in trouble. This is what Proverbs 19.22 says. It says, what a person desires or should desire is unfailing Love. He says, man, what we're really looking for is, is loyalty and love and unconditional loving relationships. You know, a lot of times when we go looking for stuff, we're looking to fill the void that only love can fill. Right? And I'm not talking about the love between a man and a woman or uh, parents and their kids, but we're talking about the love of Christ because His is the only unfailing love. We sing about that. We sing two songs today about that. His unfailing love said, what a person desires is unfailing love. That's God. But they don't know. He says, and then he goes on to say, better to be poor than a liar. He uses him in the same verse. He says, it's better to be without stuff than to be a a dishonest person chasing after these things. You see, if the things that we desire the most are stuff and money, then if those are the things we desire the most, then we will have a price that we can be bought with. There will be a price in which we will find compromise available. Like, for instance, if someone were to say, you know what, I will give you a million dollars, you know, in decent proposal, that movie came out, like, gosh, what was that, early 90s? Movie came out, couple, married couple, they were presented with this, I'll give you a million dollars if you'll cheat on your spouse. Some of you already were like, well, you know, if we talked about it, if we agreed about it. So you've already got that price because somehow you think money's going to fix it. You know, if somebody were to say, you know, if you were just to, to lie just a little bit on, on, on your resume, you'd get a job that would give you like twice as much as what you make now. And you're like, man, it's just a little lie. It's for my family. It's for the kids. It means I can give more. I can do more. And all of a sudden, it's not your desire is that income, so you're going to be a dishonest. See, that's why I said it's better to be poor 
than a liar. Because if we are desiring anything outside of God as our ultimate chasing desire, then we will have a price tag that we are willing to cash in on. You know, there's a, ask yourself, how strong are your desires for more? Are you driven by them? Are they driving your life? If they are, you will most likely choose to be dishonest rather than poor. And you will probably choose possessions over peace in your home. Look at Proverbs fifteen seventeen. It says this, better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fatted calf with hatred. It says, man, it's better to have very little and have almost like almost be in poverty and to have a life and a home that is filled with love and loyalty rather than a, a large home, multiple jobs where you're never talking to each other and the only time you do, you're arguing. He says, Proverbs 17, 1 says, better a dry crust with, a, with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Better to have a home where everyone loves each other than a home with fancy cars and more square feet arguing all the time. So ask yourself, you know, there was a book that came out a few years back called The Day America Told the Truth. And in that book, a survey was taken about the, the top things that people uh, want more than anything else. This was, a, you know, thousands of people across the United States. And the top two, uh, number one was to be rich. And number two was to be thin. The top two biggest desires in America, being a better person, did not even show up on the list at all. Our deepest desires are the meters of our unhealthy obsessions. And our deepest desires can sometimes shape our obsessions or our poor decisions. And then we wonder what happened. Well, we need to take a look at that gauge. Okay. Here's the second thing. And we're going to wrap this up pretty quick is uh, another gauge is your decisions. The pattern of your decisions tells you a lot about what runs your life. Uh, Ask yourself, what does my compass point to? Um, Think about the last several major decisions you made. Um, They usually point back to uh, how much money it would cost you and how much money you would make. For instance, everything from uh, your job, uh, you know, to the school that you want to go to, the school that you're, you know, you're hoping to graduate from, or even the house that you bought because it's got a better resale value and, you know, or the investment uh, in it to it. You know, we, we make all these decisions uh, if that is how we live, we will often end up with strife and heartache because we're not made to have that compass because our compass will be basically guided by our selfish desires and our decisions will be shaped by our wants. And for example, let me, let me put it this way. I've talked to people who are moving or who buy a house and uh, or who take a job and, and they move away and they'll they'll spend hours and hours and months and months preparing for a move or for a job or for an opportunity. And they'll, they'll talk about it and they'll put, they'll, they'll crunch the numbers and they'll do the budget. And it's basically based upon pay. It's based upon how much they're going to make, how much money they're going to be saving, but never do they ever try to find out before they go, if there's a church that their family can be a part of. Never do they look before they go and see or examine or make a decision based on how this is going to affect their family's spiritual life. And oftentimes they move and they go away and they move out of that covering of a local church that they're in and they spend years and years and they can't find one. And then they're five years 
moved away and their marriage is disastrous and their kids and them are doing well and they get like, what happened? Well, that's because you made that decision based on money. And we do it all the time. We can talk all day about keeping God at the center of our life as if he's our priority, but the truth is found in our checkbook and in our calendar. Our decisions are the gauge of toxic materialism. Did you know that this also affects our understanding of God? That's what it says in Luke 16. I mean, if you, if you struggle with this, you're going to struggle with knowing God better. It says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, uh, wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Do we have any Pharisees in here today? So many of us let the dollar make our life choices rather than the one who holds our life. Here's the third thing, uh, our gauge, and that is our dissatisfaction. We have our desires, our meter, our decisions, our meter, and our dissatisfaction, the level of our dissatisfaction. Think about it like, like this. If you hate where you are working, that could be a real problem for you. Let me put it this way. If you hate where you are, that is not a bad thing. But if you cannot cope with where you are, that is a dangerous thing. A lot of people think, man, I hate, I hate, I hate where I work. I hate my life. I hate my marriage. Or I, I hate my finances. I hate your, your, disfa- your dissatisfaction level is off the charts. Because you're so dissatisfied, your danger level is massive because the meter is like peaking because you're so angry, so dissatisfied, so unhappy. Compromise is an open opportunity in your life. Sometimes we need to look at the deep places, the deep, dark places of dissatisfaction in our heart and realize that they might set us up for compromise because we're willing to do anything for a better situation. So these gauges... We need to keep our eyes on. We need to keep on our desires, on our decisions, and our dissatisfaction. I want to end with this. This is the remedy to all this. Okay? This is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's found back in our main passage. He says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He says, here's the remedy to the materialism monster. He says, But you, man of God or woman of God, flee from all of this. Be aware, know the gauges, know these warning signs and run from them. He says, and pursue, run from and run to. He says, run to or pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. He says, fight the good fight. He says, man, this is going to be a fight. This is a challenge. This will go against the flow. You got to stop chasing some things and start chasing other things. It's a challenge to leave some things and to pursue other things. Here's the remedy. Two things. Number one, know what gives you the gimmies and flee from them. And know who gives you life and run and pursue him. That is Jesus. And here's a, here's a practical way to put this, and we're going to pray. People, places, and things. Everybody say people, places, and things. 
All of us have different struggles in this area. All right. For some of you, it might be cars. For some of you, it might be uh, possessions in your home, uh, electronics. For some of you, it might be devices. For some of you, it might be a home. For some of you, it might be a savings account. Um, and we all have these different things that tug at us and try to control us. The people, places, and things know the people and places and things that affect us. For instance, in my life, if there are people that I need to avoid because they stir up toxic materialism, then I need to flee from them. I need to know the places in my life that stir up that sense of, of, of unhealthy desires. I need to flee from them. The things that I need to avoid that stir up materialism and stir up dissatisfaction, I need to flee from them. Instead, Instead of making our decisions on where can I live better, how can I make more, we need to ask the questions, which way will lead me to righteousness? Which way will lead me to godliness? Which path will lead me to greater faith, to deeper love, to more gentleness? We need to stop pursuing the things that drive us into compulsion, flee from them, recognize them, and avoid the people, places, and things that stir those things up and make our decision based on what's going to bring a healthier walk with God. Who and what are the people? Matthew 6, I want you to read it this week. Matthew 6, 9 to 34. In fact, I encourage you, read it tonight. My my, uh, phone number is in the worship guide. I would love for you to read that this afternoon or this week and text me your thoughts on it. Thank you for listening to the Living with Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.